Heavenly Father, Lord, you've given us your word, you've revealed yourself to us through your word. And Lord, we pray that we would come to your word now with open hearts and minds. Let your spirit guide and direct our hearts and speak to us, Lord. Challenge us where necessary. Comfort us where there is need and heal us where there is a struggle. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, over the years, I've come to appreciate that there are two types of people in this world. Can you guess what they are? There are morning people and there are evening people. Morning people tend to wake early. They wake full of energy, full of beans, they're alert, ready to get on with the day. Whereas evening people, they love to sleep in. And they struggle to rise in the morning. They need that cup of coffee to get them going, at least one cup. However, in the evenings, it's completely opposite. Morning people tend to go go to bed relatively early. And evening people seem to come alive when the sun goes down. I must confess that I'm a morning person. Unfortunately, my wife is an evening person. And no matter how hard I've tried over the last 42 years of marriage, that is still the case. I love the mornings. Most days I try and go for a walk before the sun comes up. And I watch as the sun rises over the horizon and a new day begins. Mornings for me are a time of of quiet, a time for reflection, a time of prayer. And as I walk, and I, I can appreciate the wonder and beauty of God's creation as the last stars fade from the sky and the sun's rays illuminate the landscape. I think Stuart shares a similar uh, thing if you've seen his Facebook post in the last day or two with a beautiful sunrise over Pearl Beach. It's spectacular. And evening people miss this. It's really tragic. But I wonder whether you've ever walked along the beach at sunrise. There is something special about hearing the waves crash upon the shore and watching the sun rising over the ocean. Well, today we're going to look at another morning on a beach along the Sea of Galilee this time in Israel. And I'm sorry I don't have the map to show you, but uh, hopefully you'll know what Israel looks like. We're in the north of Israel, Sea of Galilee. And the situation, actually, grab your Bibles because we don't have anything slides today. Page 1088 in the, in the small print Bibles, and I forget what the number is in the large print Bibles. <coughs> 1088. The situation in John 21. It was two or three weeks after Jesus had been crucified. And in this, this uh, event, this situation, Jesus appears to seven of his disciples. And he shares a breakfast meal with them. They're on the beach, round a fire. And John closes his gospel with this account of this breakfast on the beach. Now, I think it would be helpful to place this account in the, in the context of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, because each gospel has a slightly different pitch on this. Comes, they all approach it from a slightly different perspective. In the 40-day period between Jesus' death and his resurrection, he appeared to over 500 people in various places. 
40-day period. Luke, the Gospel of Luke tells us that the ascension took place just outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, just near the town of Bethany. All the Gospel accounts describe Jesus appearing to his disciples. The key point is that Jesus rose from the dead and he rose bodily, physically. John alone relates the account of Jesus appearing to Thomas. Remember Thomas, who wasn't there in the upper room when Jesus appeared to his disciples on the day he rose? And he said that if, if um, he couldn't place his hands in the nail holes in Jesus' hands or the, the spear uh, hole in his side, that he would not believe that Jesus had risen. And a week later, Jesus appears again to the disciples and Thomas is with them this time. And he fell to his knees proclaiming, My Lord and my God. But John begins chapter 21 with the words, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Now, just trying to put some time frame around this, Galilee is at least a five-day walk from Jerusalem. What were the disciples doing in Galilee? Yeah, some two to three weeks after Jesus had risen. Well, you may recall that when the women discovered the empty tomb on Resurrection Day, in both Matthew and Mark's Gospels, an angel appeared to them and told them to tell the disciples that Jesus would go ahead of them to Galilee and that they would see him there. Now, Galilee, I remember, is where most of Jesus' ministry took place. And it was also the home of most of the disciples. So it's not surprising to find them heading back to familiar territory. It's probably safer there as well, given all the kerfuffle that had happened in Jerusalem when Jesus was ex- executed. And we see them returning to their old occupations. We see Jesus again taking the lead. So, and here he is. They said, what do we do? Let's go fishing, guys. Seven of them. And seven disciples are mentioned as going out to fish at night. That was, seems to be the best time to catch fish. John mentions five of them by name. Peter, Thomas, there's Thomas again, Nathaniel, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and two others who are not named. Unfortunately, they worked all during the night, throwing the net out from the boat, pulling it in. And as the first light of dawn was breaking through, they'd not caught a single thing, a rather fruitless night's fishing. And it sounds like a few of my fishing expeditions, I'd have to say. They were about 100 metres from shore, which is not all that far, when they spotted a stranger on the shoreline. In the half-light of the dawn, they couldn't make out who it was. But the stranger called out to them and asked if they'd caught anything, to which they replied, no. <laughs> or probably no. And then the stranger called out to them again to throw their nets out on the right side of the boat and with the added assurance that they would catch some fish. Who is this guy? He's talking to professional fishermen. So we're not real sure how the disciples felt about this instruction, but they follow his direction anyway. 
And as they threw the net over the, over the side of the boat, they couldn't haul it in. They caught so many fish, they were unable to haul the net in because of that large number of fish. And it was John, the beloved disciple, who suddenly realised that this stranger on the shore was Jesus. Probably some previous encounters with this sort of thing in the early days probably triggered his memory. How he recognised Jesus in the half-light of dawn, we're not sure, but he realised it was Jesus. And as soon as Peter heard this, what's Peter do? How impetuous friend. He just wraps his outer garment around him, so he's actually kind of, when he gets out, he's not actually naked or anything. But he jumps into the water and swims to shore. He's not waiting for anything. I find it rather amusing. He actually didn't try to walk back, but he swam. (laughs) And he left the other disciples to drag the net full of fish into the shore. And when the disciples made it to shore, the first thing they saw was a fire of burning coals with fish resting over them. And and he had some bread with him as well. Now, this is when it starts to get really interesting because Peter, he may have been reminded at this point of the charcoal fire in the high priest's courtyard on the night when Peter denied Jesus three times. His night of shame. But Jesus invites Peter and the other disciples to join him and to actually add some of the fish they'd caught to the fire. And we're told in, the, uh, in John that they caught a record number of fish, 153 fish. Now, I've wondered for a long time, and a lot of people wondered what the significance of 153 is. It's not the answer to life, and everything is 42. Let me tell you, as far as I can discover, it has absolutely no significance whatsoever. Other than the fact that it is an extremely large number of fish. So as they, the disciples gather around the fire and gather around Jesus, Jesus takes the bread and gives it to them. And he does the same thing with the fish. And then John finishes this section with the observation that this is the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples since rising from the dead. In the simple and natural setting, Jesus treats his disciples with great compassion. You can imagine how they were feeling at this stage, only two, three weeks after Jesus had died. He'd risen again, given them hope. But where was this taking them? So Jesus reassures them. He meets their physical needs and serves serves them as he did before his passion. Remember the the Last Supper when Jesus um, shared the bread and shared the wine with them. Now this gives them time to adjust to this new situation. This new situation. This is remarkable. This is amazing. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. He's really there. He's present with them. And he's again the host of another memorable meal. Jesus wants to care and support them in this time of transition. In this time before his final ascension into glory. I believe Sunday school are doing both both sides doing the ascension today. It's kind of funny we do that straight after Easter because it's actually 40 days 
after the resurrection that Jesus ascends. But anyway, that's, a, that's a, another <laughs> aside. But for John, the emphasis is on Jesus appearing to the disciples. He discloses himself. Jesus discloses himself as both fully human, walking, talking, eating, sharing, and yet as he really is. He is the risen Lord. He is the risen Lord God, the creator of the universe. Here he is in the flesh. This miracle of the miraculous catch of fish was the last miracle recorded in John. And it was probably intended by Jesus to remind them of their commission to catch what? Men. Right at the start, he invited them to come and catch men, not fish. They, could, they were to become fishes of men. There was another point there. They could do nothing without Jesus. Professional fishermen, been out on the lake all night. They knew how to catch fish, but they caught nothing. But here it was, Jesus comes onto the scene, and with Jesus following his commands, his constructions, what do they catch? A huge catch of fish. I don't think that point was lost on the disciples. They were to be totally dependent on Jesus. And if they were, incredible things would happen. Now, this is part of Jesus' commissioning to the disciples to be his witnesses. In Matthew's Gospel and also a bit in Mark, we find Jesus' great commission to his disciples when he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What's he say? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't stop there, folks. Because he goes on and says, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. There's a teaching, there's a witnessing, there's an there's a evangelistic uh, component, but there's also a teaching component. Make disciples. That's, that's what the package is. Make believers. See new life come into people's lives and watch that new life grow and develop and mature. That's the Great Commission. Now, don't you miss, observe that Matthew actually spoke these words to... Sorry. Matthew records that Jesus spoke these words to the disciples. Where? In Galilee. Not Jerusalem. The commission's given in Galilee. But Luke, the Gospel of Luke, just fleshing this out... He doesn't mention this excursion to Galilee, but gives, goes straight to the ascension and Jesus' last words to his disciples to wait in Jerusalem and they were to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which came 10 days later on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit would give them the power to be his witnesses, Acts 1.8, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see how it sort of the ministry expands? So each of the four gospel writers has their own kind of commissioning of the disciples. So we return to John 21. The final scene continues on from the breakfast on the beach. And it seems clear that the other disciples are still present, but there is unfinished business with Peter. 
Peter had confidently said that he would follow Jesus anywhere. This is before Jesus was arrested. And then shortly after, he denied three times that he ever knew Jesus. Now, in this very moving episode on the beach, it shows us how Jesus handles or can handle our well-meant but rash promises and the failures that so often follow them. Peter's threefold denial of Jesus on the night of his trial must be dealt with. His credibility with his peers must have been under very real question. And we cannot imagine the shame and the guilt Peter would have been feeling. And now he was face to face with Jesus. Jesus, whom denied, who he betrayed. And then Jesus tests or questions Peter's loyalty to himself by asking Peter three times whether he loved him. The three denials must be cancelled by three affirmations. In addressing Peter each time as Simon, son of John, Jesus speaks to him as if he were no longer a disciple. For he goes back to the name Peter had when he and Jesus first met. Jesus gave him the name of Peter, the rock, when he became a disciple of Jesus. But here he asks Simon, son of John. That is significant. Now the framework for the questions is the principle, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Jesus had said previously, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves them. Whoever has my commands, whoever obeys my commands, he is the one who loves me. I too will love him and show myself to him. It's John 14, 21. Now the form of the first question to Peter, do you truly love me more than these? That presupposes that all seven disciples love Jesus. Do you love me more than these? Group situation. Now the purpose of this question is not to set in Peter in competition with the other disciples, but simply to single him out from the rest and examine his love in particular. Note the repeated pattern of the question, answer and commandment. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Peter's answer, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And what does Jesus tell him to do? Feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And Jesus' command, feed my sheep. <coughs> now there are some subtle differences in the Greek words used here for love. There's the agape, head knowledge, love. And there's the filio, filiae, which is a brotherly, affectionate kind of love. There's a difference between the words feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. There's uh, feed or care for, there's the lambs, there's the sheep. But it, put, uh, but it would appear that the threefold repetition is really for Peter's benefit. Peter replies 
And Peter's replies reflect his awareness that Jesus already knew his heart. And Peter in verse 17 is obviously saddened by the persistent repeating of the question he has already answered. But the purpose of the repetition is to match his earlier triple denial and to elicit from him a firm commitment to continue the shepherd's work during the time of the shepherd's absence. If he truly loves Jesus, he must obey Jesus' commandments. And for him, the single command is feed my sheep. This is a kind of commissioning. Peter here is given a pastoral responsibility among Jesus' followers. This is, as I said, Jesus in effect commissions Peter to pastor the flock. He's given a job to do, not a position. Feed, take care of, and feed the flock of God. He is to tend God's flock. Notice it, it is God's flock, Jesus' flock. It's not Peter's. It's like this church. This is God's church. This is Jesus' church. It's not Stuart's church. It's not the warden's church. Certainly not the parish council. <laughs> this is God's place. We are God's flock. And if you remember way back, a good shepherd, Jesus says, lays down his life for the sheep. And it's not surprising that the mention of Peter's pastoral responsibility leads into reflection on his eventual death. And it's a, which is a consequence of him fulfilling his pastoral responsibilities as a shepherd of God's flock. Peter will be put to death as a martyr. And like his Lord, in, sowing do, he, in, sow, in doing so, he will glorify his God. Peter is then invited to ongoing discipleship of Jesus when Jesus says simply, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. We're never told in the Bible about Peter's death, but several early Christian writers give us some details. Peter was arrested at the order of the Roman Emperor Nero. And when he was, he was sentenced to be executed, and when he was taken to be crucified, Peter asked to be crucified upside down. He did not consider himself worthy to die in the same manner as his master. And apparently his request was granted. What can we say about all this? The point here is that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And we too have failed, either by denying our Lord or by not speaking up about our faith in him when the opportunity arose. We've all plugged our ears at times when, when, when he was speaking to us. We've all disobeyed him. And maybe we've pushed these memories to the backs of our minds. Or maybe we're all too aware of them. Either way, Jesus' word to us is the same as it was to Peter. There is no recrimination. Just one simple question. Do you love me? Do you love me? In short, Jesus 
is the source of healing and restoration. His ministry is not one of accusation. His ministry is one of forgiveness. Jesus doesn't want us to live with shame and guilt. Jesus wants us to be free. Free to live life full of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to enjoy his peace. The contentment that we can only find in a life of loving obedience to our Lord. He wants us to live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. He wants us to live a life obeying his commands, fulfilling his great commission to follow him and to be witnesses, powerful witnesses for him in this world. May we pray. Our gracious Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we can only stand in awe of what you have done on our behalf by suffering death on the cross and rising again in fullness, in glory. And we thank you that we can come before you in total humility, knowing that you love us, that you care for us. And as we are willing and able, as we confess our sins, that you are willing to forgive us, to restore us, so that we do not have to carry that burden of guilt and shame. Thank you for the example of Peter and your ministry to him on that beach long ago. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.